At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. A number of months ago, one of my listeners contacted me regarding Thomas Collier, a man I have mentioned a few times in these broadcasts. My hearer wanted to know what resources were available for a study of his life and teaching. I had to reply that I didn't know a lot except that Collier was opposed by William Kiffin and Nehemiah Cox as one who taught, quote, heresies and gross errors, end quote. And one of his theological writings, secondarily called His Confession of Faith, may well have been a catalyst to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Sensing my ignorance, this question has stirred me to research Collier, and I've found some surprising things. First, there's only one major attempt at a thorough study of his life and teaching. That's a doctrinal dissertation by Richard Land, done while at Oxford in 1980. It is called Doctrinal Controversies of English Particular Baptists, 1644 to 1691, as illustrated by the career and writings of Thomas Collier. This is available to be read or downloaded from the Oxford University Research Archive website. But be warned, it is well over 400 pages, and it's in the form of a 175-megabyte PDF. However, it is clearly written and well-researched, and a solid first attempt at telling Collier's story. Land did an excellent job of locating and chronologically ordering Collier's many writings. This is tremendously helpful for several reasons. One is that Collier has often been depicted as uneducated in one sense or another. But the list shows he wrote about 37 books, depending on how one counts the various editions. This makes him one of the most prolific particular Baptists of the 17th century. And it's clear from the record of his debates that he had at least some familiarity with biblical Greek. Another helpful thing about this list is that it enables us to see how his doctrine changed over time. And Collier did change his mind about a number of important doctrines during his long life, sometimes more than once. Land details Collier's personal history, strong evangelistic zeal, doctrinal and practical teaching, and leaderships among Baptists in the southwest of England. And although Land's work is over 40 years old, there are not a lot of corrections that need to be made to historical matters, as best I can tell. One publication that Land couldn't locate has since been found in a single copy in a library in Germany. And while helpful, it doesn't dramatically change his story. 
Land is, in my opinion, much too lenient in judging Collier's theology, which was a strange personal mix of orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and even heresy. But again, overall, this is an excellent place to start to become familiar with Collier. Another more recent book that treats Collier fairly and in some depth is Ian Birch's To Follow the Lamb Wheresoever He Goeth, which the author describes as a study in, quote, the ecclesial polity of the English Calvinistic Baptists, 1640 to 1660. That was published by Pickwick Publications in 2017, and used copies can be obtained inexpensively from abebooks.com. I sometimes end my episodes with suggested further reading, but I'm doing that up front this time. Other places where Collier is significantly treated are in Dr. Samuel Renahan's From Shadow to Substance and Stephen Wright's The Early English Baptists, 1603-1649. Now let's begin his story. Little is known of Collier's origins. No certain birth or baptismal information has been found, but from an aside in one of his books, it seems that the southwest part of England was his birthplace. He was likely a Somerset man from the town of Westbury, born about 1613. In his early 20s, he seems to have rented land for farming and later married a woman named Joan. Their first child was born by 1640. At some point during this time, he must have converted to dissenting and Baptist views. This can be deduced because we know he was involved in evangelistic preaching in Kent during 1642. This was in conjunction with William Kiffin and other London Baptists. He was apparently even a member of Kiffin's church for a time before returning to the West Country. He made a friend in Hansard Knowles who wrote a foreword to one of Collier's first books in 1646. Its shortened title is The Exaltation of Christ, and it was an explanation of the work of Christ in his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. It is orthodox and written in a lively style, and it was very popular going through four editions in just a few years. By 1646, he was accused by opponents of going about the southwest counties, quote, preaching and dipping, a charge no doubt he would have gladly accepted. And from a letter of Collier's from this period, it's known that he spent some time on the island of Guernsey, preaching and trying to organize a church. But he and his followers were soon expelled. Continuing this zealous style of outreach, Collier was later jailed in Portsmouth. There are records of his being in many other towns all across the southwest. In Poole, for example, He said that 14 people were converted under his preaching and then were immediately baptized. Clearly, he was a man of some preaching ability, energy, and convictions. He appears to have had an appetite for an itinerant ministry because he was also in places as far removed as London and York during these years. In every place he went, he tried to establish churches and then returned to visit them or help in their oversight. Much of this travel and preaching was occurring during the English Civil War of the 1640s, and so we aren't surprised to learn that Collier preached to the parliamentary soldiers. He also served as an official army chaplain 
probably for about nine months toward the end of the war. He even preached in London at the army headquarters on at least one occasion and had the sermon published. Collier also played a significant role in a regional Baptist association meeting in 1658. He generally led the Western Baptists all through his life from the 1640s uh, through to about 1690. After Thomas Venner's uprising against the government of Oliver Cromwell failed in 1657, the Fifth Monarchy Movement tried to recruit Baptists and others to help them overthrow the government and set up the physical reign of Christ in England. About 300 men, including many Western Baptists, convened in Dorchester the following year to discuss whether they should join the movement. Collier led the meeting on the first day and was opposed to the merger. But when William Kiffin unexpectedly arrived the next day, he took leadership of the meeting and successfully kept the Baptists from joining forces with the Fifth Monarchists. This likely saved the Baptists from destruction. Collier also publicly debated opponents in his early years. In March of 1651, he held a dispute with two ministers from local Somerset parishes. The Church of England men then published their version of the debate, but he didn't think it was fair to him, and so Collier answered with his own version of the proceedings. This makes for a clear and first-hand account of some of his views in his hand from the time. He also debated various Quaker preachers, and both he and his opponents sometimes published their take on the dispute. Collier strikes me in his early years as an ever-moving, always preaching, constantly organizing man. Now, he didn't have a university education. In that sense, he was uneducated. But clearly, he had a wonderful command of the scriptures, at least in the sense of knowing the words. But how he understood its teaching varied sometimes widely over time and seems to have been rooted in a fairly simplistic biblicism that sometimes led him into truth and other times into error or worse. His doctrinal fluctuations fall into three periods. In the next episode, we'll begin to look at the first two doctrinal periods of his public ministry covering the years 1645 to 1660. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Mm-hmm.